Scripture lesson for this Sunday comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Listen now for God's word to you. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but, the night, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul in because, of their, because there were so many fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with, where fish, with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same thing with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, question for you all this morning. How many of you in this room consider yourselves to be extroverts? Raise your hand. And how many of you would consider yourselves to be introverts? So for those of you who are introverts, I'm right there with you. I am an introvert, and I want to clear the air about introverts. Uh, the idea about introverts is that they don't like being around people, which is not true. We enjoy people, we enjoy our family, our friends, but it's just not where we get our energy. I know after a couple hours, three hours, I need to go back by myself and recharge my battery so I can continue to enjoy being around people. Now, my wife, Heather, is also an introvert, but she also has this uncanny ability to act like an extrovert in social gatherings. Like, she's the life of the party. Um, I'm kind of a curmudgeon. You'll find me off in the corner at large social gatherings, connected to the one person I talked to at the beginning. Um, <laughs> but Heather is the life of the party. Everybody loves her. She has this great magnetism about her. Um, I'm convinced that my family, given the choice, if they had to choose either me or her, they would choose her. Um, that's how much people like Heather. Um, but getting her to leave a party is a Herculean task. When she tells me it's time to go, my shoes are on, my coat's on, I'm almost all the way to the door already. But for her, it is a sacred ritual that involves many steps that can never be deviated from. Heather is the master of the Midwest goodbye. And judging from your reaction, you all who have grown up in the Midwest or spent considerable time in the Midwest know what the Midwest goodbye is, and you probably have participated in the Midwest goodbye. 
Uh, someone on Twitter said it is like a good eight-layer dip, um, which is another great Midwest institution, right? So someone on, on Twitter details what the Midwest goodbye is involved with. So it's the about-to-leave warning first. Usually for me, that's a, a leg slap on Heather's leg or a whelp. The uh, we've-got-to-go statement, hugs, first round of hugs, walking to the doorway, one more conversation in the doorway, um, and I'm thinking here about, well, not yet, and then more hugs, and then talking while everyone's piling in the doorway. I'm thinking here of my, my, my house growing up and all my cousins and aunts and having a conversation in the doorway, and that conversation can last anywhere from five to 45 minutes, and then placing your hand on the doorknob. Now, if you really want to spice up the eight-layer dip that is the Midwest goodbye, if you really want to add some more things to this and really bring it all together, you can add a few more steps to it. You can then open the car door, but don't get in just yet. Stand there with the car door open and have more conversations. Sit in the car with the door open and continue to talk. Then sit in the car with your head out the window, continuing that conversation, and then finally leaving. Then your Midwest goodbye is complete. Now, the writer of the Gospel of John lived long before the Midwest was a thing, long before the Midwest goodbye was ever around. But to me, John seems to be the master of the Midwest's goodbye, uh, that he lingers. His conclusion to his story just keeps on going. John doesn't know how to say goodbye. Uh, last week, between what we read this week and what we read last week, uh, there's these two little verses in the Gospel of John that say, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. That sounds like the end of the Gospel to me. That sounds like a conclusion. But apparently John was just standing in the doorway. And he has more things to say to us. And so as he's standing in the doorway, he has one more story to tell us about the risen and living Jesus as he shows up for his disciples. Uh, these disciples have already experienced the power of the resurrection, already experienced Easter. And we have heard these stories over the last few weeks that Mary Magdalene comes back to them and in her proclamation, I have seen the Lord, they hear the good news of Easter for the first time. And then Jesus shows up for the disciples minus Thomas and Judas and, and even though the doors are locked and they're afraid, Jesus shows up in that place of fear and helps them to move into a world that so often can make them afraid. And then last week we heard how Jesus comes back for Thomas and in those interactions with his disciples in that house, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them, gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Go into the world and do the things that I have been doing. But now, here again, in this doorway conversation in the Midwest goodbye, we find the disciples not doing what Jesus has asked them to do. What do we find them doing? They're going fishing. That Peter, they're on the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Um, this is the body of water that features, features prominently in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus ministers in the towns and villages along its coast. And at least two of Jesus, or at least three of Jesus' disciples are fishermen. They're commercial fishermen. This is how they make their living. 
And so when Peter invites them and says, I'm going fishing, what he's not inviting them to is to a guy's weekend of fishing and camping. He's inviting them back to whatever it was he was doing before Jesus. That despite receiving the Holy Spirit, despite these appearances of the risen and living one, Peter and these other disciples go back to normal. Go back to whatever life looked like before Easter, before Jesus had walked out of the tomb. But if Jesus has been raised, if he walked out of the tomb, if he shows up behind the locked doors of our hearts, if he comes for Thomas and those who are struggling to believe, if he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, then there is no normal for us to return back to. God's new world has emerged right into the present. And this is at the very heart of the earliest Christian proclamation about the resurrection. Um, The idea of resurrection doesn't start, doesn't begin with Christianity, doesn't begin with Jesus, but it emerges in this period of time that's known as Second Temple Judaism. So Second Temple Judaism is this period of time that goes from about the year 500 B.C., all the way through the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So as you can imagine from the name given to this period in time, this is when the temple is being rebuilt following the destruction during the Babylonian exile. Temples being rebuilt. Judaism as a faith really is starting to come together at this point. And um, it's important to keep in mind that during Second Temple Judaism, this is a period where the Jewish people are wrestling with almost 800 years of uninterrupted subjugation and occupation by foreign empires. They're living through this almost uninterrupted period where some other nation has control over them. And so you can imagine this creates some really big theological questions. How are we God's people if we're not living free in the land that God has given to us? And it also creates a question around God's justice. How is God just? How is God fair if we don't possess the land that God has given to us? And so in reflecting on these ideas, yes, it is raining rather hard outside, in reflecting on these ideas, we start to get these very familiar theological concepts. And one of those is the idea of resurrection. So as the people are anticipating and waiting for God to act, the idea emerges, the, the, the hope emerges, the dream emerges, that one day God is going to restore the nation of Israel. All of the diaspora Jewish people are going to come home, and all of the dead are going to be raised. This is going to be the dawning of God's new age. This is going to be the, the end of the world of sin and death and injustice and occupation. And instead, it's going to be the new world that God, the, the dream that God intends for the world. So, It should be noted that resurrection is not about some ethereal, otherworldly place. It's not originally an idea about going to heaven when you die. It's about hope for this life, hope for this world. The theologian Hirgen Moltmann says this, Believing in the resurrection does not just mean assenting to a dogma and noting an historical fact. It means participating in this creative act of God. Resurrection is not a consoling opium soothing us with the promise of a better world in the hereafter. It is the energy for a rebirth of this life. The hope, the hope doesn't point to another world. It is focused on the redemption of this one. So it should be noted, though, 
that not every person, not every second temple Jew, Jew believed in resurrection. Famously, there's this group of people in the Gospels called the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees are like the temple elite who run uh, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, they don't believe in the resurrection. And in Sunday school growing up, we said they were called the Sadducees because they're sad, you see. They don't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> and it should also be noted, not every person who believed in the resurrection of the dead thought the same thing about it. There were divergent views, different views about it. But we united them all together was their belief that this was going to happen at the end of history, that this was the culmination of all time, and that it was going to be a communal event. And that is to say that it was going to happen, everybody was going to be raised together at the same time, and that it was all about God's new age emerging right here in the present. So this is the framework that the New Testament authors are using when they're talking about resurrection thinking about the new age of God dawning in the world. And, and so you can imagine the sort of pushback they're going to get when they start proclaiming Jesus has been raised from the dead because the world didn't end and it was just one person who walked out of the tomb on Easter morning. But Peter N. says these New Testament authors do something that's really important, something that we have all have been doing since the beginning of our relationship with God. They begin to reimagine God. So it doesn't happen how anyone expects it to happen, but that doesn't stop them. They begin to reimagine. They begin to think differently about it. And what they say is that when Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter morning, that new world actually does begin. That world of love and justice and equity and peace, it actually does happen when Jesus walks out of the tomb. But that's a really bold claim, isn't it? That's a bold claim to say that the new age has dawned when the old one seems to be very much present with us. It's a bold claim to say the new age has come when Israel hasn't been restored and the Roman Empire still controls people's lives. It's a bold claim to make when there is still injustice and pain and there's poverty and hunger and homelessness. How can these New Testament authors make this claim that the new world actually has emerged with Jesus? So what they do, what at least many of them do, is they say, well, it is just the beginning with Jesus. It is just a foretaste of what is to come. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about the, the, Jesus being the first fruit. So it is, it is here already, but not yet. In theological circles, it is called the already, but not yet. You can use that with people later on and sound really theologically smart. <laughs> the already, but the not yet. It is here, sort of but not fully realized just yet. Others would say it is, it's the fullness of it is coming soon. Jesus is coming back literally, really soon, maybe after church service, maybe tomorrow. But the gospel writer John does something I think that's really interesting to me, that he doesn't put off these expectations to some future time. It's not an already but not yet for John. It is an already here in all of its fullness the scholar C.H. Dodd says that, that, he takes all, that Jesus takes all of those expectations waiting for that future world of God, and he places them within Jesus, and he says that they are all ready here in all of their fullness. We don't have to wait for them. And that is an even bolder claim. 
to say that the fullness of the hope and expectations with God are here in the present. How can John make such a claim? Now, how many of you have in the past or continue to do, to do Easter baskets with your kids or your grandkids? I love Easter baskets. I love them especially because there's this thing called the dad tax. Um, y'all have heard of the dad tax where I'm entitled to a certain percentage of their candy? Um, I don't make the rules, guys. It's just, it, just, it is what it is. There's also a tax that comes out at Christmas time, too, uh, with the Christmas stockings. But I love Easter baskets. I love seeing the joy on my kids' faces. I love, you know, it's, it's really an exciting thing for me. Now, if I was to give you all an Easter basket, I would want to make sure that you all had one gift in it, and it is the gift of disillusionment. And you all are saying, that's not really a great gift. Does it come with a gift receipt? Um, But disillusionment is just this. This is Barbara Brown Taylor. She says, disillusionment is the loss of illusion about ourselves, about the world, about God. And while it is almost always painful, it is not a bad thing to lose the lies that we have taken for truth. Disillusioned, we find out that what is not, that we find out what is not true and are set free to seek what is, if we dare. I think Easter, the unexpected gift of Easter is that it does disillusion us with the world as it is right now. It leaves us asking questions about whether or not this is how it should be. That I think we are meant to be disillusioned with the sort of world where there is pain and suffering, where the planet is harmed. We are meant to be disillusioned with the sort of world where, where hatred is seen as commonplace. We're meant to be disillusioned with the world of poverty and pain and injustice. We're supposed to question that sort of world because I think Easter reveals to us that there is something better on the horizon, that what is right now, the world as it is, is not as it could and should be. And disillusionment, I think, frees us to seek that world that emerges when Jesus walks out of the tomb. It is a gift, I think, to be disillusioned. It is a gift to be disillusioned with a with a world where some people are working two and three jobs and still struggling to make ends meet. It is a gift to be disillusioned with a world where some people go to bed hungry at night where others have way more wealth than they could ever do anything with. It is a gift to be disillusioned with a world where there are are laws that are being passed targeting our LGBTQ siblings. It is a a gift to be disillusioned with a world where there is racial injustice. It is a, a gift to be disillusioned. And it is not until we are disillusioned that we can then walk out of the boat, walk away from the normal that these disciples have returned back to, and go and meet Christ in the new world that he brings with him. Not until we are disillusioned with the old world can we then be free to walk out of the boat and seek the new age as it dawns in our world. And this is why Jesus comes back again for his disciples Um, where they have returned back to normal, back to whatever it was that they were doing before he showed up. Um, Jesus, too, seems to be really good at the Midwest goodbye. Um, He just keeps on showing up, right? He just keeps on coming. He's in the doorway, then he's at the car. He just doesn't know how to leave. And that's maybe a good thing, that wherever we in our own lives have returned back to normal, back to the old way of things, Christ shows up there at the boundary between the old and the new world and comes and asks us to follow him, to join him in the new world that he is creating. The claim, as bold as it is, that when Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter morning, that the new world in all of its fullness has emerged, 
is only true if there are disciples who are willing to follow Christ into that new world. It depends really upon us. That in every act of love, in every seeking of peace, in every work of justice, in every act of inclusivity, the new age of God emerges fully right into the present. In all of those ways, a little bit of that new future longed and hoped for emerges right here in the present. The risen and living one stands always at the shoreline of our lives between the normal and between the new, between the old age and the new, bidding us to come and follow, to bring the fullness of all of those hopes and expectations to bear in our world. Thanks be to God. Amen.